welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I am Peter Jones, a retired Vice Admiral from the Navy Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, Canberra. In a previous podcast, we have discussed the work of the attack class patrol boats in fisheries protection work in Northern Australia. In this episode, we're going to look at the work of the big ships in protecting fish stock in the Southern Ocean. It is a story of a cat and mouse game of countering illegal fishermen, which weaves together international law, big demands on ships and their sailors, all in the context of rough seas and very cold weather. To tell this fascinating story, I'm joined by, on the line from Wollongong, Professor Stuart Kay, who is the Director of the Australian National Centre for Ocean Resources and Security at the University of Wollongong. He is one of Australia's leading legal experts on the law of the sea. Stuart is on the International Hydrographic Organisation's panel of experts on maritime boundary delineation and is an arbitrator under the Environmental Protocol to the Antarctic Treaty. He is a fellow of both the Royal Geographic Society and a fellow of the Australian Academy of Law. I'm also joined on the New South Wales South Coast by Commodore Les Pataki, who was a veteran of the 1991 Gulf War. As a captain, he was the commissioning commanding officer of the frigate HMAS Anzac and commanded her during the first fisheries protection operation in the Southern Ocean. Later in his career, he served as the Deputy Maritime Commander, and after leaving the service, he had a successful career in the IT industry. In the studio, I'm joined by Commodore Roger Boyce. He's a communications specialist and commanded the frigate HMAS Canberra from 2001 to 2002, during which time his ship undertook operations in the Arabian Gulf, as well as in the Southern Ocean. In 2010, Roger was the Deputy Commander of the Australian Forces in the Middle East. And finally, on the line from Brisbane, Commander Peter Tedman, a very experienced clearance diver and a recipient of the Distinguished Service Medal. He has served in many operations, including in Iraq, the Arabian Gulf and East Timor. In his career, Pitt has commanded Clearance Diving Team 4, the shore base HMAS Morton in Brisbane, and is an aide-de-camp to the Governor of Queensland. Importantly for this podcast, Peter was a boarding officer during the first two of the Navy's operations against illegal fishermen in the Southern Ocean. So first off, to set the scene, Roger Boyce, can you tell us something of Heard and Macquarie Islands, where these fishing grounds were? Um, where, where are these islands? What are they like? What is the fisheries around them? Yeah, thanks, Peter. So uh, it's okay if I address them as the as the Haimai EZ, Heard Island, McDonald Island. Um, just makes it a bit easier. So they are an isolated group of islands about 2,200 nautical miles southwest of Perth. Uh, they are situated on the Kerguelen Plateau in the Indian Ocean and they are contiguous to the French Kerguelen Islands. So on that plateau you get depths of around about um, one to 400 metres, but just south of the islands the depth drops away very, very sharply to, uh, to you know, abyssal type um, depths. The fishery down there, well, if I can go back and just talk a little bit about the Australia's history there, those islands were unknown uh, to, uh, to mankind until about the mid-1850s when they were spotted by some, um, uh, some Americans aboard ships passaging from, uh, from America to Melbourne uh, and uh, some years thereafter a commercial um, elephant seal fishery was established there uh, very harsh conditions and it, it operated for about 20 years I think and they took um, as much elephant seal blubber and oil as they could out of the place until they destroyed the population and then they left. Um, Australia um, took over those islands or was, was ceded them or, or whatever the word is from uh, the UK in uh, 1940 I think something like that 
um, and we have been running them ever since. In terms of what they're like uh, topographically, they're barren, um, uh, very little down there. They're, the, they're the, the site of Australia's only two active volcanoes, um, uh, apart from uh, ones down in Ant and the Antarctic landmass. Uh, in fact, those volcanoes have been quite active over the last decade. Um, and also, uh, um, uh, Mawson Peak, the highest point on Heard Island, is actually the highest Australian mountain, if you like. Uh, in terms of the uh, of the fisheries down there, mostly uh, um, it is the uh, Patagonian toothfish and the mackerel icefish, which have been the subject of uh, fishing activities down there. The the Patagonian toothfish, which which some years ago was renamed uh, Chilean sea bass in the U.S. market, um, is a long-lived fish. lives about 50 years. Uh, in its adult uh, uh, form, it it can exist down to depths of about three and a half thousand metres. Uh, it can grow to a couple of metres uh, in length. Uh, the life cycle um, uh, dictates that they need to, in their juvenile um, stage, spend time uh, in depths of around about 100 metres. So they, they breed around the uh, high my uh, EZ uh, and then spend their adult lives uh, down in the deep water. And that is a very uh, lucrative uh, uh, fishery um, because of the nature of the fish flesh and uh, in terms of omega-3 fatty acids and things like that. Uh, the only other the other fish there was the uh, mackerel ice fish uh, less uh, fished uh, and they uh, they are short-lived fish and they live uh, around about the in that 100 meter zone around the islands and they're trawled whereas the um, the Patagonian toothfish is uh, caught on long line. Okay, thanks, Roger. Uh, I'll turn to you, Les. Um, so the, the Southern Ocean comes with a fearsome reputation. Can you describe the challenges for mariners operating in these waters? Well, from a fierce reputation perspective, this is mostly attributable to the high winds and heavy seas that you experience down there. Around the, you know, I've experienced the, you know, the roaring 40s, but I think they call it the screaming 50s down around Heard Island. Um, so this presents challenges for operating aircraft and boats in those sorts of conditions. But also there are other challenges such as operating in cold water conditions and this can have a, an effect on whole structures and also uh, hypothermia for people who are exposed to the elements either by being uh, man overboards or uh, just operating in boats where you are subject to spray, spray conditions. But the major issue that we had to address earlier on was uh, the suspected... Uh, brittleness of Westeralia's hull in those conditions. Um, the issue being that she's an old ship and in, in freezing conditions uh, the hull may become quite brittle. But we managed this by establishing a patrol box about 200 nautical miles north of Heard Island and we placed uh, Westeralia in there, uh, which is in sort of warmer water. So just to reduce and manage the risk uh, from, uh, from the hull structure uh, brittleness and hull failure. Some ships, such as Canberra in 2002, reported cracking and dissimilar metal bonding failures due to the, uh, the cold water conditions. And uh, I would understand that this would occur uh, because of with the dissimilar metals, they expand and contract at different rates in, different, in those temperatures, and that would uh, cause some sort of uh, bonding failure or cracking. Uh, another issue would have been icing on the superstructure. Uh, this was considered to be a real possibility, particularly as the sort of air and water temperature down there was either at zero or, or less than zero degrees centigrade. Uh, but from our perspective on ANZAC during Operation Derp, uh, we didn't really have a problem with icing because uh, it just tended to slide off and, and didn't bond to the uh, to the superstructure. However, Canberra did, uh, suffer, did suffer some superstructure icing, and uh, this was in 2002, and did use uh, de-icing techniques to manage that. Um, prior to the operation, I, I did some research on the conditions that we could expect down there, and uh, I read the uh, seamanship manuals and navigation manuals that we do have at hand, uh, just to uh, see what they said about uh, operating in heavy seas and, uh, and high winds. But mostly uh, those manuals were dealt with quartering and following seas, and nothing really in relation to panning into heavy seas. 
And uh, the primary reason for my concern about panning in the heavy seas is I've crossed the Australian Plate many times. And uh, on some several occasions, we have lost upper deck ladders, lockers and fittings due to uh, lots of water on the forecastle. What we did in relation on Anzac is that prior to the operation, we removed all ladders and detachable fittings uh, that were on the forecastle, and, uh, and those that could not be uh, removed, uh, we braced them so that they could withstand the expected volumes of water on the forecastle. And, and that proved quite successful. Now, the other issue is the remoteness of Third Island, which is about 2,400 miles southeast, correction, southwest of Fremantle. So the issue being that if you have an operational medical emergency, you're on your own. You've got to deal with it yourself. Okay, thanks, Les. Um, turning to you, Stuart Kay, can you, um, we heard a little bit about the history of, uh, of Heard and McDonald Island, but can you explain the Australian connection to the islands and how does the EEZ, or Exclusive Economic Zone, and the fisheries protection uh, regime actually work? Yeah, sure. Um, Australia, as uh, Roger said, acquired the islands after the Second World War from the, from the British. The British were beginning their retreat from empire and the opportunity to offload a, a place without any people in it uh, uh, would save on administration costs. Australia was keen to do more in the Antarctic uh, after the war and so uh, was happy to acquire the, uh, the islands to use them as a, a base uh, to ultimately prepare for uh, the establishment of bases on the Antarctic mainland. Uh, a base was established uh, and there was a lot of Navy assistance with respect to that. I think HMAS Wyatt Earp uh, made a few runs down to, uh, down to Heard Island to help establish the base. Uh, and uh, there was a, a famous run, I think, shortly before she decommissioned, uh, perhaps for the, the reasons that, that Les has suggested. Uh, HMAS Australia had to make an emergency run to rescue the um, doctor from the Heard Island base. Um, because he developed appendicitis and uh, she made a run in June and apparently did quite a lot of damage to her uh, uh, hull as a result of presumably the temperatures. Um, Australia abandoned that base after we established bases in the Antarctic in the later 50s, uh, but have, have continued to, to visit the islands from time to time and the Antarctic Division manages those visits and has kept the islands as a, as a uh, wildlife sanctuary in the, uh, in the years since. The islands, though, are, are quite large, and under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, they're entitled to uh, an exclusive economic zone uh, out to 200 nautical miles, where a, a state like Australia can assert exclusive jurisdiction over fisheries. The convention doesn't oblige us to protect those fisheries, but it's an indicator of sovereignty, and so it would undermine Australian sovereignty if we allowed anybody just to come in and take whatever fish they wished. So uh, Australia's been active in trying to ensure the protection of those stocks under the Fisheries Management Act for many years. Okay, thanks Stuart. So, so we've sort of set the scene and, uh, and now the, um, the Australian government had been alerted to some illegal fishing in the area and uh, Les Pataki, your ship and West Australia were assigned to this first operation. So can you explain what the operational plan was to uh, go down to the Hearn McDonald Islands? Well, broadly, the operational plan was for Anzac and West Australia to prepare for the deployment and then deploy down to the Heard Island area. Um, but there were some, uh, I guess, preliminary planning that needed to go ahead, such as um, trying to, uh, I guess, manage the, the boarding risks that may arise due to uh, uh, the boarding party receiving a poor reception or an opposed boarding. And uh, so to manage this, we, uh, we, we embarked a boarding party made up of Navy clearance divers and Army Special Forces. So these guys are really sort of armoured up and, and ready to, uh, to meet any sort of opposition that, that they could come across. The other plan was to, uh, was to deploy uh, two uh, RAAF C-130 Hercules aircraft to Lara Union. And uh, these uh, aircraft were fitted with long-range fuel tanks. And, uh, and their primary role was to, I guess, do an initial uh, sweep of the area prior to our arrival, and then on the night of our arrival, uh, do another sweep and then report back to us uh, when we're in the area, the locations of the uh, of any vessels that they detected. So the 
So the planning included uh, considerations for what type of boarding operations we would undertake. And uh, we had two options. One was to insert our boarding party from an aircraft or from our helicopter with a fast rope down or boarding by the two ships' boats. Uh, and I think the two ships' boats one was an important consideration because I fully expected, uh, due to the heavy pit pulling, that the aircraft airframe would be overstressed while, uh, while it's uh, rigged, while all the, uh, the tie downs are rigged to it uh, in the hangar. Uh, to uh, stop its movement uh, while the ship is rolling and pitching. So this sort of perception that the aircraft frame would be unserviceable uh, led me to believe that our primary boarding method would be by boat. So boarding by sea base was practiced as part of our workup prior to departure. And uh, a key safety issue in, in relation to boarding in those sorts of sea conditions or, any, or, or uh, sea conditions that are marginal is that the speed of embarking boarding party into boats, and if you take a, take a long time to get these people into the boats, that just increases the risk over a longer period uh, while you're embarking these people. So I overcame that by uh, establishing or at least fitting or having a fast rope rigged to the boat davit, and uh, the boarding party would then fast rope into the boats, and uh, we found that this could be done. Each boat could be loaded uh, within 30 seconds per boat. And so, so that we could actually uh, boat, uh, board by using the boats required us to consider well, what sort of approach would we make to, uh, to, actual, to the actual target fishing vessels. So uh, I sort of decided that we would do a silent approach under cover of darkness but just before dawn. And uh, we, we would then approach, approach the vessels, uh, launch our boats, embark the boarding party and board. And then following that... Uh, if the vessels were apprehended for whatever reason, we would then they would then be steamed with the ship steaming party to rendezvous with Australia while we continued with other boarding operations. Thanks, Liz. Um, so Peter Tebman, just uh, to bring you in uh, as the one of the boarding officers, can you just talk about uh, from a, a boarding party perspective uh, what Liz has talked about uh, getting into the boats. Uh, thanks, Peter. Um, I think the greatest challenge, as as uh, Captain Pataki said, was um, was the weather and the sea state and the speed with which it changed. Uh, our first boarding was planned to be uh, via via the boats, um, but unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, that went awry pretty quickly um, because of the rough weather. We lost uh, one of the uh, boarding team. Uh, into the water. Um, fortunately, one of the boats was already in the water, so we were able able to recover him quite quickly. But, but of course, because because the uh, the water is pretty cold down there, he ended up with uh, mild hypothermia, um, which put pay to the first attempted boarding. Uh, later that day, we uh, completed the boarding um, using the helo, as uh, as as uh, Captain Pataki mentioned. Um, from that point on, we, we conducted all of the boarding and, and security part of it uh, via, the, via the helos. Uh, and then what would happen was so we'd, we'd uh, put a, a, a six-person team on board, uh, secure the vessel. Um, uh, once we were, we confirmed that they were involved in illegal fishing, which was, which was pretty simple um, because they were recovering fish at the time most often. Um, we contacted Captain Pataki and uh, he gave approval to apprehend. At that point, we brought the, the second boarding team on board and, uh, and then, and then uh, brought our fisheries inspectors and, uh, and our steaming party on there as well. Um, because Australia was the, really the first nation to conduct boardings and apprehension of, of these vessels, uh, we had no kind of shared experience of how the crew of the fishing vessel would react and how best for us to react in the worst case, which was uh, an opposed boarding. Uh, for that reason, um, as was as was said earlier, the decision was made to split the team 50-50 between clearance divers and SAS. And uh, for us, the inclusion of the SAS personnel brought with it some extra firepower. So that was, I guess, the main reason behind that. So, uh, Peter, so the SAS, that's a special air service regiment yeah. personnel. So yeah, they that. were based in the west near uh, where Anzac was based. That, so that was a 
presumably quite useful in terms of preparations? Yeah, it certainly was. Um, being able to uh, bring the team together uh, at the very start of the operation um, and work with the uh, the crew of Anzac and also the, you know, the Hilo crew um, and the boats and, you know, off Western Australia, it was, it was, a, it was a very uh, streamlined workup that we had. Okay, thanks, uh, Peter. Back to you, uh, Les Pataki. Um, so you talked a little bit there about the, the need for a, a covert uh, approach to the vessel, but just looking at the bigger picture, you've got this long passage from the west, uh, uh, Fleet Base West, to Heard Island area. Um, so you had this concern, presumably, about um, trying to have a, a covert approach down to the islands. Can you just talk about um, those concerns and what measures uh, you, you um, incorporate into, into the plan? Uh, yes, uh, look, operation security was a key part of, uh, of maintaining security and, I guess, secrecy of the activity because there, it was felt, and it probably still is felt, that there are local fishermen in the Fremantle area who had potential ties with vessels or companies uh, that were operating in the uh, Heard Island and McDonald Island area. So the risk was that if they knew uh, we were preparing for a Southern Ocean deployment, that they would warn these people who are operating down there and they would then depart the area, which means our, our trip down there would have been uh, a waste of time. So the cover story for the Operation Dirk, which was Anzac and West Australia, was to uh, conduct further trials related to the acceptance of Anzac into service. And... Uh, and, uh, and the, uh, in relation to the RAAF cover story, I understand that, that the uh, cover story there was that it was a long-range navigation exercise crossing the nation to La Reunion. Now, a key aspect, though, was that uh, after a departure from Fremantle uh, on passage to the Heard Island area, we came across a Japanese fishing fleet that we just virtually stumbled on them. Um, however, uh, we skirted around them uh, and so that we, we avoided contact with them, but this did slow down our speed of advance. Okay, thanks, Les. Um, Stuart Kay, what were the legal requirements for a successful apprehension and conviction in a court? Well, like any criminal matter, there's a, a standard of proof, which is the, the same for any criminal matter, which is uh, beyond reasonable doubt. But international law makes it a little more difficult for criminal matters of this nature. Uh, because they, they basically require you to be able to make the arrest catching people in the act. You have to catch them in an area where you have jurisdiction. So it's not enough that you go down, take lots of pictures and then wait three months till the vessel's around somewhere and arrest it. You, you really have to catch it while it's up to no good, uh, which is one of the reasons why you know, uh, the operational security for the, for the uh, uh, apprehension had to be uh, very good. Um, once you've been able to catch them in the act, then proving it in the court tends to be relatively simple. If they've got a lot of fish in the hold and you've got photographs of them uh, pulling them out of the water, you've got the ship's logs and uh, uh, the like, uh, proving that they've uh, been doing things that they shouldn't have is, uh, is usually pretty straightforward. Okay, thanks, Stuart. Um, back to you, Les. So October 1997, um, the uh, Anzac and Australia about to set sail. Now, this was, uh, as was alluded to, the first operation of its kind. Um, can you just uh, give us a sense of the feeling uh, that you had and, and, and your ship's company had about embarking on this uh, completely novel operation? Well, there was uh, the crew themselves were actually uh, quite excited about it. Uh, you understand that as a brand-new ship, we've spent virtually two years at sea uh, doing trials and things to, uh, to finally accept the ship into service, into operational service, and, and having con conducted a major exercises uh, in the Darwin area, we, we uh, were quite excited to now be given our first real-world operation. Um, however, having said that, uh, the removal of some of our ship's company to, to allow the, uh, the boarding party to come on board, which, is, which was made up of clearance divers and the SAS, uh, was a little bit disappointing for those that had to be left behind. Yes, I can imagine. Um, so can you take us through how Operation Dirk actually unfolded? Well, okay. So uh, we did our, pre our workup training uh, in company with success, uh, integrated the helicopter and the boarding team into our operations. 
and then we departed the area uh, heading down towards Heard Island. Uh, about two days out from, uh, from Fremantle, uh, we came across a really doozer of a storm with large rolling swells coming in from two directions uh, with extreme pitching and rolling of the ship. And in some cases, we were looking up at the waves at the, which were above the bridge height as they were rolling in and crashing onto our forecastle. So, so this storm lasted about for four days, and uh, because of the heavy seas and pitching, and that the, uh, the speed of advance was was down to about six to eight knots, and we're heading directly into the wind and the sea. However, having found that uh, by altering course by about twenty degrees, our speed of advance increased by several knots. So that was a bit of a revelation and something that wasn't included in the books and research that I had done. So, however, uh, after avoiding the Japanese fishing fleet and about halfway to Heard Island, uh, we did have a medical emergency, which was an appendicitis case. And uh, I advised, uh, I considered that we would have to resolve this issue ourselves, so I advised a medical officer on West Ray to prepare to conduct the operation uh, on the uh, patient. However, fleet headquarters crash sailed HMAS Darwin uh, from Fremantle to head towards our area and we then turned around, closed the distance so it was sufficient for us to uh, to launch our aircraft uh, to the extreme range of the aircraft and to land onto Darwin and to transfer the patient to Darwin who was then transported back to uh, back to uh, Fremantle. But, uh, you know, it, it, at this stage the weather was pretty crappy and uh, pretty rough but uh, when it came to launch the aircraft, when we were in, within sort of skip range for the helo, clouds opened up, the sun shined, the wind dropped off, so we were able to launch a helo, and the wind disappeared over the horizon, the weather closed in again, and uh, while well, we waited for the aircraft to come back. And fortuitously, when the aircraft did come back, the same thing happened. Clouds opened up, sun shone, uh, we landed the aircraft, and then we proceeded back down to rendezvous with West Australia. So that was actually the passage there. After that, it was reasonably uneventful. Um, but on the night of arrival uh, in the area, we established commons with the RAF Hercules surveillance aircraft that had, uh, that had uh, flown through the area and uh, visually uh, observed uh, where the uh, fishing where the fishing vessels were fishing, and we then plotted the reports on our system. So uh, that same night, we then, in the early parts of the morning, we approached the edge of the EEZ, the Exclusive Economic Zone in Darkness, and we, we detected a fishing vessel's radar, and we used this to home in on it until we gained visual contact. And the visual contact was principally uh, due to the uh, very bright deck working lights that, were, that these vessels display when they are actually working their lines. So I was of the view that uh, these fishing vessels, because of these bright lights, would have would have lost their night vision. And so we approached from the stern to about 200 yards off the vessel uh, on its starboard quarter. And uh, so we then considered uh, you know, the boarding by boat. So at that time I consulted with Peter Chapman and uh, regarding the suitability of the currency conditions for safe boat operations. Uh, we both agreed that, yep, it's okay, so we committed to the boarding. So while we're just uh, hovering about a quarter of a mile to half a mile off the uh, off the uh, quarter of the uh, fishing boat, we launched our sea boats and loaded the boarding party. Uh, the port sea boat launched and loaded uh, using the fast road method, which was uh, effective and efficient. But during loading of the starboard sea boat, uh, a boarding party member landed on the rubber hull and bounced into the water. So somebody on board raised the man overboard alarm and uh, threw the life ring and the flare overboard, uh, as, as you would normally do in the case of the man overboard. And uh, However, the man overboard was immediately recovered by the port sea boat, which was sitting astern as in the safety boat position. So raising the alarm, uh, which was, I think, that you know, broadcast that on the upper deck broadcast, um, I think that uh, made us lose the element of surprise. And so, but the priority was now to get the man overboard inboard for treatment and observation. So at that time, we recovered both sea boats and, and we dropped the way astern into the darkness. So as suspected, though, the fishing vessel was alerted by our, to our presence. Uh, he stopped fishing and he, and he headed west at best speed and exited the EEZ on the other side of McDonald Island. 
So fortunately, though, he did not he did not alert the other fishing vessels, and they continued their fishing operations. So we were pretty uh, disappointed by uh, by the way this unfolded, and uh, morale I think was a little bit low in the ship. Um, but that daylight, we re-entered the EEZ, detected more radars, and honed in on them. And we and when we uh, got got within horizon range, we, we observed them over the horizon or just on the horizon, and we committed to a helicopter boarding. So Anzac launched the helo and for uh, an over horizon insertion, and we closed the fishing vessel at speed uh, while the helicopter inserted the boarding party. And this resulted in the arrest of their first vessel, which was the uh, fishing vessel Salvora. So, so after uh, we decided to, uh, that yes, we should apprehend the vessel, we inserted the steaming party and extracted the boarding party by boat. So down in the, in the uh, Heard Island area, the actual sea conditions were quite favourable for helicopter operations as well as boat operations. Thanks, Liz. Peter Tedman, you, you were the boarding officer for that first um uh, insertion by helicopter. Can you um, take up the story about what occurred on on board the fishing vessel? Ah, uh, yeah, Peter. Um, as as Captain Pataki said, the first boarding was uh, was on to Salvora. Um, I describe Salvora as a typical longliner, so uh, a rear superstructure, a long forward deck, um, and the long line being recovered on midships and just happened to be on the starboard side. So uh, so as it turned out, Solvora, as we uh, as we hovered over Solvora prior to uh, prior to um, deploying the fast rope and then putting the team down the fast rope, um, it was actually recovering the long line and we we watched um, you know quite large Patagonian toothfish uh, coming over the, coming over the side and being Recovered by members of the crew and and uh, and put down into their sort of in their into their um, into where they process the fish. Um, our initial boarding uh, was conducted. Uh, we put six people on board, um, by as I said, by fast rope um, from Anzac's helicopter. Uh, once we're on board, uh, three of the people uh, went to the bridge, and three of the people stayed at the uh, at the boarding point just to secure that for. The second team that was was coming in. Um, interestingly, we got to we got to the bridge, and uh, as as we arrived on the bridge, um, one of the crew members uh, grabbed a book and 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 sort of bolted bolted for the lower decks. Um, one of the uh, one of the SAS guys uh, chased him down and, and grabbed grabbed hold of him, and as it turned out, um, the book was the log. Of all of the fishing they had done till that point, and and I think they're only probably a couple of days off being off being um, full with uh, Patagonian toothfish and, and probably heading home. But because Salvora was fishing at the time we boarded, uh, as Captain Pataki said, I contacted him and he authorised the apprehension. Um, we, and uh, and turned Anzac towards the fishing vessel. Um, once we once we uh, got on board, we sort of we we talked to the crew a little bit, and uh, they were uniformly surprised at, at what had happened because um, they had been overflown by helos from other countries in the past, and um, which and the only only thing they did was to obscure the name of the vessel, but they never expected to be boarded, particularly by armed personnel. So um, they were very compliant and I guess they just enjoyed their trip back to Perth. Okay, thanks, Peter. So back to you, Liz. Do you, do you want to just uh, complete the story about uh, Opdirk? Sure. So uh, after uh, the arrest of the Salvora or apprehension, uh, we inserted our steaming party and extracted the boarding party. Uh, the uh, Salvora was then steamed towards success. Um, so we then steamed west, further west, uh, towards Heard Island, and uh, where we detected two other vessels uh, of the same class and apparently operating as a pair. Uh, we again inserted our boarding party uh, by Hilo, and we arrested the Alicia Glacial. Uh, her sister ship, which was uh, operating as a pair with her, uh, she headed west at speed just to get away from us. Uh, we did consider boarding the sister ship, after, but after consultation with Peter Tedman, 
uh, we decided uh, not to do another boarding that day due to uh, the boarding party fatigue. And by this time, it was getting uh, later in the afternoon and uh, some of the activities may have had to be conducted in the dark. So uh, it was, I guess, a, a smart decision not to uh, do another boarding that day. So both fishing vessels were then escorted to Australia's patrol box and handed over to Australia, while Anzac then returned to Heard Island for another sweep of the uh, economic exclusion zone. Uh, a key uh, issue regarding uh, insertions by helicopters is that we did need to communicate with uh, with the vessels, with the fishing vessels, and on VHS communications, and this actually alerted the other vessels in the area that there was a presence of an Australian warship. And so all the other vessels in the area, having having noted this, uh, immediately fled west clear of the economic exclusion zone. So by the time we came back the following day or, the, or two days later, having escorted the, uh, the fishing boats to Australia and handed them over, by the time we got back, the, the EEZ was clear. And uh, so our suite by us and by the helicopter did not locate any further further vessels operating in the uh, economic exclusion zone. Now, but in relation to, say, the other aspects that we've discussed before, the, the ocean's fierce reputation, uh, the extreme weather and sea state en route to Heard Island uh, and on return to Heard Island was a, was a limiting factor. A, it slowed us down, and B, uh, there was potential for, for damage to, uh, to both ships. However, conditions in the area of operations were moderate and allowed safe boat and helicopter operations. And, uh, and fortuitously, Anzac did not suffer any structural damage or loss of equipment, I think principally because of the precautions we took about removing anything that was movable on the, on the forecastle. Uh, we removed it and bolted it down and braced those fittings that could not be removed. Australia did sustain damage to the upper deck structures and fittings during the passage to the AO, but nothing that was mission critical. Uh, ice, icing uh, on the superstructure, uh, we did ex see and observe icing on our superstructure, but it didn't stick and it was just observed to slide off, uh, possibly due to the ship's thermal mass, which, uh, which sort of allowed the ice not to stick. Uh, the observed water and air temperature at that time or down in the Southern Ocean was zero degrees centigrade. So uh, it was sort of right on, on, the, on the margins down there. Uh, we did experience flooding in a storeroom forward of a cable locker, but this was a procedural issue uh, uh, when pumping out the cable locker. Uh, so this flooding damage was not attributed to storm damage or storm activity. Okay, thanks, Liz. Uh, Stuart Kay, what happened to the apprehended Salvora and uh, Alicia Glaciel? As we've heard, they were brought into Fremantle. Um, the two vessels, uh, Salvora was um, was much older and not particularly desirable, but uh, Alicia Glaciel was uh, was quite new. She was less than 12 months old and had uh, been built, uh, I think, in Norway. Uh, the company that owned her had taken out a very large mortgage on it and uh, so when the two vessels came in, they came alongside the Fremantle. The uh, bank that uh, was owed money on the ship uh, sought to secure their, their interests by um, going to the Australian Federal Court and seeking what's called a, an action in REM to try to get priority over their debt over the Commonwealth um, potentially seizing the vessel. Um, the Federal Court should have, shouldn't have allowed this, or at least uh, nobody should have been allowed access to the ship but a, um, uh, a court officer was able to get on board and plant the federal court's notice on the side of the, uh, the ship. And as a result, the proceedings had to commence. And uh, that took about another eight months to resolve uh, before it was finally decided, I think it went all the way to the high court, that uh, uh, the Commonwealth would have priority. So in the event that the ship was forfeit, it would come to Australia. Uh, however, unfortunately, at the... When the ship had come alongside, nobody took the master's passport off him and he uh, disappeared overseas very, very quickly. And as the Fisheries Management Act stood at that time, unless there was a successful prosecution that resulted in a conviction, um, there was no forfeiting of the uh, vessel. Uh, and as a result, at the end of the eight months when uh, priority was determined that the Commonwealth would get the vessel in the event of uh, um, uh, it being forfeit, 
the vessel's owners went to the court and said, well, we'd like our vessel back, please, because you haven't registered a conviction uh, because the master was on the run. Uh, and as a result, the vessel had to be released. Uh, and so it's one of the more sorry aspects of all of this that the uh, Alicia Glacial ultimately escaped, uh, albeit that she remained alongside in Fremantle for many, many months. Uh, the Fisheries Management Act was altered in the wake of this uh, to ensure that if somebody skipped out and uh, tried to avoid trial, that the vessel could still be forfeit even without a conviction. Okay, thanks, Stuart. So that was Operation Dirk. The following year, 1998, the, the frigate Newcastle and the Australia repeated the success of Op Dirk by apprehending the fishing vessel Big Star in Operation Stanhope. Peter Tedman, as was mentioned, you were boarding officer for um, Stanhope as well. Can you briefly uh, say what occurred? Uh, Peter, as you've already said, um, you know, Dirk was Dirk was conducted in October '97, and and Stanhope was February '98. Um, I'm not sure if our our preparation was perhaps a little less secretive, but for whatever reason, uh, when we arrived on station, there were there were there were far less vessels. Um, we we tracked uh, two fishing vessels um, for a number of days, but what they were doing was was kind of coming in and out of the EEZ. So they were they were pretty much on the line between our territory and French territory. So the best we could do was was simply track them, I guess. Um, but after a couple of days they did they did move um, sufficiently far into our area that there wasn't going to be some sort of uh, legal ambiguity about it. Um, so uh, so we boarded big stuff. Um, our intention was to board to board both vessels if possible, so to uh, quickly secure Big Star, um, get the boarding party back off, uh, put the steaming party on board, and uh, and they could they could just secure it in area, not obviously take it away, so the other vessel became aware. Um, that that went quite well. The the, the boarding went well. Um, the securing of it went well. Unfortunately, um, during the transfer of the steaming party, um, we flipped one of the uh, rigid inflatables. Um, once that happened, it, it sort of took the second boarding um, off the table, if you will. Uh, we got the we, we eventually got the boat back. We got the boarding party back once the helo was was back in the air, um, and we uh, sell, uh, sorry. Uh, Big Star was then um, taken charge of by Westralia, which was which was sitting to the north, um, and we we sort of stayed in the area until unfortunately the weather the weather got the better of us, and a decision was made for uh, for Westralia and uh, Big Star to start heading home, and then we we rejoined Westralia and uh, went back to Fremantle. Thanks, Pete. Uh- in April 2001, a Togo-registered but Spanish-owned fishing vessel, the South Tomy, was caught illegally fishing off Heard Island by the Australian Fisheries Management Agency, or AFMA for short. Uh, they chartered a vessel, the Southern Supporter. When challenged, South Tomy initially headed towards Fremantle, but once on the high seas, it turned towards Africa. Stuart Kay, what happened in this incident, and can you explain the legal complexities? Yeah, this was uh, quite a, an adventure and quite complicated from a legal point of view. Um, Southern Supporter, as I understand it, uh, wasn't um, authorised to undertake opposed boardings. And when she uh, patrolled and encountered South Tomy, initially South Tomy was compliant and agreed to accompany um, uh, Southern Supporter back to Fremantle. Uh, but as soon as they left the exclusive economic zone, South Tomy took off um, and uh, uh, South uh, the um, a southern supporter uh, commenced a hot pursuit uh, in order to uh, uh, in order to maintain Australian jurisdiction over the vessel, uh, but both vessels uh, were not capable of huge speed, and so at about ten knots they chugged steadily westward for quite a way. Uh, ultimately, uh, a boarding was able to be effected, but only after a boarding team was flown from Australia all the way to South Africa. And then a South, a South African hydrographic uh, ship 
was made available and took the uh, uh, boarding party out uh, to uh, where South Tommy and Southern Supporter were still chugging, uh, chugging along westward uh, and uh, a boarding was effected. Now, it needed Southern Supporter to continue in pursuit in order to maintain jurisdiction under the rules in the Law of the Sea Convention for Hot Pursuit. But they couldn't break off because had they done so, it would have effectively meant that South Tommy was getting away. But it was the, uh, to that stage, the longest hot pursuit ever undertaken because they were south of South Africa when the apprehension took place. And uh, it was uh, also, as I understand it, the first multinational hot pursuit where uh, the, uh, a vessel of another nation, in this case South Africa, was used to help facilitate the, uh, the boarding that took place. Thanks, Stuart. So, Roger Boyce, in 2002, your ship, the frigate Canberra and the tanker Westraya, took part in Operation Sutton. Can you briefly describe how you fared there? Uh, so, uh, our uh, preparations and our passage down were largely the same as uh, Liz's experiences in uh, Anzac. The only difference uh, being that I was in an FFG and FFGs were a little more susceptible to the effects of icing and so we took a large steam gurney to um, to try and uh, uh, mitigate the effects of that. We did experience quite significant icing down there um, and FFGs uh, don't have a very large margin of stability for top weight and so we were very uh, attentive to that. Uh, we went down there the same as uh, Liz did encountered the same sort of uh, weather conditions, uh, left West Australia in her patrol box to the north um, and we got into the uh, EEZ and uh, we contacted, made contact with uh, a fishing vessel, uh, the Lena. Uh, we did um, a, a helo insertion uh, direct uh, and apprehended her um, uh, and we were using non-SAS uh, or clearance diving uh, personnel. In our boarding party, we had worked up for a deployment to the Persian Gulf just beforehand, so the, the teams were well up to speed. And I think by this stage, uh, the Navy had uh, been a little less sensitised to perhaps uh, that these boardings might have been opposed. Uh, so that boarding went OK. We dispatched the Lena up to the... Um, uh, the box where Australia is with a stemming party um, and then we were dispatched out west of the islands uh, because of a sighting by the um, RAAF uh, C-130 patrol that had come over. Uh, they picked something up on their weather radar and we went out uh, into the teeth of a very large storm, um, sustained quite a bit of damage but found nothing. Uh, on the way back uh, we apprehended another vessel, the Volga, right on the limit of our EEZ um, to the north uh, and I, I know that that dragged on quite a time through the court, international court in The Hague as they, as they sought to, um, to prosecute that and we then uh, headed back to uh, Fremantle with those uh, two vessels. Um, one thing I, I also would like to say is that we uh, took with us a METOC, a, a, um, a uh, a weather officer and we were able or she was able to with very um, uh, accurate uh, timing predict the exact moment of the fronts coming through uh, because it's it's unrestricted or un down there in the west uh, southern ocean and so you can plot those fronts coming through and so we almost knew to within an hour when we would be getting very adverse weather conditions uh, and so that was a great a great help to us. Thanks, Roger. Um, Peter Tedman, we've, um, one thing we haven't really talked too much about is what was it actually like on some of these deep-sea fishing vessels? Can you just uh, paint a picture for, for what the ships were like and, and their crew? Um, we, when the first vessel we boarded, boarded Salvor, as I said, was, was um, what I'd say was a, a typical longliner, um, relatively small crew. Um, as as we we're, were as we're boarding, um, just before we deployed the the uh, fast rope, um, one of the one of the crew came out to have a, a cigarette, and and uh, we waved, and he waved back at us, and so he got a bit of a surprise, I think, once we uh, 
once we um, we dropped the long line and start, sorry the uh, fast rope and and started started fast roping onto his vessel, so they were they were they were fishermen. Um, they were they were there for the fishing and and when the fishing stopped, they were they were quite compliant and um, quite quite helpful actually. Um, so the Selvora was one type uh, one type of vessel, and the Alicia Glacial was was very different. Um, it was uh, much more modern. Um, so the accommodation was much better. The the uh, the setup that they they recovered the long line was quite remarkable. The long line would come over the forward end of the of the ship. It would go through a set of jaws, which would would basically rip the fish off the hook. Um, the fish would go down below decks into the processing area. The long line would con- continue along the deck. As it was going over the stern, it would be rebated and relayed. So it was just this continuous process of fish coming onto the vessel, being ripped off, going down, being processed, and then and then it was the, the long line was relayed. So it was uh, it was very very different Salvora, not only in 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 how it fished, but uh, also its capacity because it was a much larger capacity vessel. So uh, yeah, they were they were very different. But but as I said, the crews were were fishermen. Uh, once they realised that the game was up, um, in in the case of Salvora, they became quite compliant and quite helpful. In the case of Alicia Glacial, they said pretty much will be in our cabin. You look after everything from here. So um, that was it. Okay, thanks, uh, Peter. So to continue the story, in 2003, uh, in that fishing season, the Australian Defence Force launched Operation uh, Gemsbok and the uh, Defence Force operated in conjunction with AFMA Coastwatch to apprehend the Vyasa 1 as it fled from Heard Island and McDonald Island, EZs across the Indian Ocean in late 2003. Stuart Kay, can you just take us through this particular episode? Well, this was a case of history almost repeating itself. Um, much the same thing happened. The Southern Supporter was patrolling the uh, Heard and McDonald Islands exclusive economic zone. Uh, she found the Vyasa 1, which was a Uruguayan registered uh, uh, fishing vessel. Um, this time the Vyasa 1 took off and uh, um, Southern Supporter again couldn't undertake an opposed boarding, so continued uh, to her pursuit. Um, the Vyasa tried to lose them by heading into ice, and even though Southern Supporter wasn't ice rated, she continued and they played a bit of cat and mouse around the icebergs for a while. Uh, and after about three weeks, uh, it was apparent that uh, Vyasa was making its way uh, back towards its home port of Montevideo uh, in, the, uh, in the Atlantic Ocean on the uh, uh, east coast of South America. Uh, again, um, the South Africans were happy to assist and uh, another boarding team was flown, but this time Vyasa was a bit too quick and the um, South African uh, vessel um, it was going to be beyond its range to continue the uh, pursuit. Uh, and so uh, I think the boarding party then had to transfer into a, a Falkland Islands government uh, uh, vessel, the James Ross, uh, that uh, ultimately um, finished the pursuit off and were able to get a boarding party uh, on board. And then Southern Supporter and Viasa made their way back uh, all the way to Fremantle. Uh, because the hot pursuit was uninterrupted, it meant that Australian law... Um, was actually applied uh, in the Atlantic Ocean at the uh, at the time the pursuit was uh, uh, was finally affected, and it meant that this was now the, the longest hot pursuit in history, uh, which extended for over three weeks and uh, all the way from the, the middle of the Indian Ocean uh, through to the middle of the Atlantic, uh, and uh, uh, then back all the way to uh, to Fremantle. Um, interestingly, the Uruguayan government didn't say a word through all of this, uh, through the pursuit, until the actual arrest was made. And then it turned out there was a Uruguayan government observer on board the vessel. <laughs> and the Uruguayans immediately demanded him back, saying that he'd been wrongfully arrested with the rest of the crew. Um, Uruguay wasn't tremendously helpful throughout the, the whole process. He was ultimately flown back home after Viasa made its way back to Fremantle. Okay, thanks very much, Stuart. Um, in January 2004, in the last such operation to date, the frigate Warramunga, 
this time with a replenishment ship success undertook Operation Celesta. Les Pataki, uh, um, what success did Warramunga and, and success have? Well, on, uh, on Operation Celeste, uh, the, the, I guess their success was limited uh, by the, uh, the the conditions they experienced down there, and I, and I guess the uh, the hazards that they experienced during seaboat operations and also helicopter fast roading, where uh, they did lose men overboard and had to abort some of their uh, their activities just to recover the men overboard. Um, but the key success was that uh, they did apprehend the, the Mayor 5, uh, which had the largest cargo of Patagonian two fish to date. So uh, that was quite a success there, but uh, a hazardous operation. Okay, thanks, Liz. So um, to wrap up, Stuart, what is the situation today? Well, today, responsibility for uh, looking after the um, uh, fishery protection in the existing economic zone is one of the tasks that Maritime Border Command has. And periodically, vessels uh, of Maritime Border Command have made their way uh, down into those waters. They've tended to be specialised vessels that uh, operate uh, by the, uh, the ABF. Australia also realised, though, the logistics of operating in these waters was, was quite extreme. And with that in mind, um, uh, Australia and France began discussions uh, that led to the, an adoption in 2005 of initial cooperation treaty and then ultimately uh, by 2011 had a full uh, enforcement treaty where French vessels could travel into Australia's exclusive economic zone around Heard Island and make arrests and Australia uh, could do the same uh, within the French exclusive economic zone around Kerguelen or around the Crozet Islands uh, down in the southern Indian Ocean. Uh, a number of uh, mutual enforcements have been done in this way over the years. Uh, a few of them have raised some issues, uh, including a potential of a reference to the European Court of Human Rights about how long somebody might be stuck on one of these vessels before uh, they can be presented before a court. But uh, uh, ultimately, those arrangements have proven to be quite robust, and uh, Australia and France still... Uh, undertake patrols in that part of the world from time to time, although the fishing effort down there has, uh, illegal fishing effort has reduced dramatically because there's also been the introduction of a uh, mechanism to track where uh, fish are caught from. And unless a fish can be demonstrated to have been caught lawfully, uh, it can't be imported into the United States, the European Union or Japan, and that has reduced the demand for illegal fishing from that part of the world rather dramatically. Okay, that's good news. Thanks very much, Stuart. So to conclude, I'd like to ask our panel, what are their thoughts on the legacy of the uh, Navy's experience in protecting the fish stock in the Southern Ocean? First off to you, Peter Tedman. Uh, thanks, Peter. Um, well, I, I, think it was, I think it was a learning experience for us all. Um, I, I think the way we, we went about it um, because we, you know, we hadn't we hadn't done a lot of a lot of um, fast road boardings of vessels that say uh, up until that point. I think it 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 uh, certainly from Dirk and Stanhope stood us in 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 pretty good stead um, when we when we moved on and we did those later operations, but also um, operations in the Gulf and 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 those types of things. So yeah, I think I think um, it was it was a learning experience. Uh, we got it. We got it. Uh, I think we got it mostly right. We got a little bit wrong, um, but we we learnt along the way. Thanks, Pete. Uh, Roger Boyce. Uh, look, I, I I definitely agree with that. I think that uh, the experience that we gained by doing those operations uh, was invaluable, and I think it'll be invaluable in future, as the Antarctic uh, oceans will become a uh, a resources. Uh, contested area I think down track and it would be good for us to reference those lessons that we learnt. I think also it uh, it pointed up um, uh, the fact that we could do operations with um, within a ship's company. We didn't need to augment to, uh, to carry out such operations. Thank you. Uh, Liz Pataki, what's your thoughts? Oh, look, I agree with the previous comments, um, and so my view is that uh, a legacy for us is expanding our experience and knowledge base of operating in extreme conditions and at extreme ranges, but uh, but also that uh, experience and knowledge is perishable, and yes. they do need to be refreshed either from lessons learned 
application of lessons learned or uh, or uh, redoing the, the activities. Yes, and uh, hopefully uh, this podcast will be a good reminder for uh, those serving in the Navy into the future. Um, and finally, uh, Professor Stuart Kay, what's your thoughts? Look, I think it um, demonstrated substantial Australian resolve. The size of the lawful fish stocks in that part of the world are very small, but it demonstrated Australia wasn't going to see them um, uh, raped and pillaged. And uh, ultimately, it's led to good cooperation with the French in, in that part of the world. And that cooperation is most unusual uh, in terms of the mutual enforcement provisions in it. And that's, that's a very positive step. Uh, also, Australia led the charge in terms of catch certification, which has done a lot to help uh, protect the stock. And uh, I think um, the uh, operations down there meant that we had skin in the game, that, that meant those diplomatic efforts uh, followed and uh, have been followed up and been effective. Thanks, Stuart. Uh, my thanks to Peter Tedman, Roger Boyce, Les Bataki and Stuart Kay. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group and the Creative Media Unit at the University of New South Wales in Canberra. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us. And if you like this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so other people can learn about the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now.